Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm Kay Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor I was working for asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That confused me. It confounded me. It led me to dig into the history of my faith. I began with the early church, the early church fathers, up to the history of the Bible, how the canon was put together, the Bible was formed, what books were in, what books were out, up through the history of Christianity into the Reformation and beyond. And it was then, diving deep into church history, that I found the Catholic Church. There it was, looming large in Christian history. It made some grandiose claims. It had a lot of things going on. I looked into those claims and those things as well. And it turns out that a lot of what I believed, the Catholics believed, were based on misunderstandings and misinformation. Well, I became Catholic. And this podcast is dedicated to filling in those gaps. The gaps between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week, I have a real Catholic thinker talking about a real Catholic topic from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week, I'm joined by Dr. Richard DeClue, the Cardinal Henry de Lubac Fellow in Theology at the Word on Fire Institute, and a fantastic commentator, speaker, theologian, talking about the idea of Vatican II. What's the deal with Vatican II? And look, here's the genesis of this episode. This is important for me. Really important. I get emails, messages all the time from people who are looking into the Catholic Church, who are looking at converting, and I love those emails. They're very rewarding. I was there one time, and I love to help people to make that same connection, to make that same leap. It's a beautiful, wonderful church, an incredible faith, the fullness of the Christian faith, in my opinion. But I get these people who email me saying, hey, look, I I googled or I put into YouTube Catholic Church, and what I'm finding is these videos with Vatican II. These people talking about how Vatican II wasn't valid and the Pope isn't valid and all these things and this division begins to occur in the Catholic Church and in the mind of these converts. So they're looking into Catholicism and what they find is this divided church, divided over the idea of the Second Vatican Council, this mechanical council in the 1960s, dividing the church. Well, what's going on with this? That's our goal here today. Dr. DeClue is going to come on this show and explain to us what Vatican II was, what it meant to do, what the ramifications were, what resulted afterwards, and what it all means. Was it a valid council? Were its aims, were its intentions good? Were they Catholic? Is this the direction the church was meant to go in? Or did the church stumble and fall somewhere along the way and now it's not what it says it should be? Guys, it's a fantastic episode and I think so important. For those of you who might just gloss over this episode and think, well, Vatican II, I don't know, not very interesting, I encourage you to listen and take with us this deep dive into Vatican II so that you can explain to those who are looking into the faith what's really going on. It might challenge some of your preconceived notions too, but my goal is just to explain what the council was and to push back against some of those people who are criticizing it as not a valid thing, as not an important thing, as not a good thing. Because sure, we can see, we can look around and see that some things that came out of Vatican II may not have been that great, and we'll address that in this episode. But ultimately, we need to understand its place in church history. We have to stand behind this united Catholic Church, not really accelerate or exacerbate these divisions. 
Because we have a beautiful, wonderful fullness of the Catholic faith. In the Latin Mass, which I love, and the Novus Ordo Mass as well. In, in these ideas of, of missionary zeal of the Church, and the importance of the Church as a salvific thing, as the thing that saves us, as the mechanism that Christ has established to use on earth. All these things we'll unpack in this episode. It's brought to you by my patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. Honestly, guys, I do need your support to keep this thing going and growing. So thank you to those who are already supporting this show each and every month. Thank you. If you wanted to help out with this show to keep costs manageable and under control, patreon.com slash cordialcatholic or one-time donations at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. Thanks so much, guys. Without any further ado, my conversation with Dr. Richard DeClue. What's the deal? With Vatican II. <laughs> that rhymes. Please listen and enjoy. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cordial Catholic. Thanks for being here. Thank you for watching. Fantastic episode for you here today. Richard. Welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're slowly going through the Word on Fire roster, so yeah, slowly, <laughs> slowly having all of you and your colleagues on the program. Yes. You guys are doing fantastic work there, so I, we just love it. And this, this isn't a topic I might normally do because we don't do the deep theological weeds here in this program sometimes. I'm a convert. Mm-hmm. A lot of converts watching this show, people looking into the Catholic faith, people who are maybe Catholic and don't quite know what they believe in and learning more about the faith. But it's those people, it's those Christians who are looking into the Catholic faith that I've heard so many times from on this topic. They'll say, hey, I'm looking at becoming Catholic, but I've heard this stuff about Vatican II. And I've heard stuff over here is this terrible thing. I've heard stuff over here that's this great liberalization of the church and we can all do what we want and it's got a very freeing thing. Right. I know the truth is somewhere in the middle there and you're going to help us unpack that. But I want to come at it from this angle because this is, I, I, this is a dividing thing among, in, within the Catholic church and it's something that puts off those potential converts to the church. And it, it, it breaks my heart that when does. I... Yeah, it breaks my heart when I I have somebody approach me or email me or or send me a message and say, "Hey, look, this Catholic Church looks beautiful, but what is going on with Vatican II?" So you're here to clear up all the misconceptions for us <laughs> and just pave the way. Some of them. Yeah, yeah. So all those potential converts can just march right into the church and enjoy the fullness of the Catholic Church, right? That's that's exactly what you're going to do for us today. Right. Well, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> small task ahead of you. So I do want to begin at, at the beginning of this thing and ask you if you can kind of tell us, what, because some people who are tuning into this program have just no idea what Vatican II is when I say Vatican II, or we say Vatican II. So what was right. the Second Vatican Council? I mean, just at the very base level, what was this thing? Yeah, so ecumenical councils have been going on since the 4th century. The first one was Council of Nicaea in 325. And what it is, it's a gathering of at least most of the bishops, usually, of the world into one place um, to address certain issues. Um, very often, they're doctrinal issues. So if there's a heresy that's everyone's wrestling with, well, what's the true orthodox position? Um, they'll come together and settle the matter. 
Um, sometimes it's disciplinary. So, and sometimes it's both. So sometimes it's a matter of legislation. Um, so that's, that's what an ecumenical council is. And they have to be confirmed by the Pope. So the Pope, in order to be an authentic ecumenical council, the Pope has to ratify it. Um, the second Vatican council was called by Pope St. John the 23rd. And shortly after he was actually made Pope and that it was somewhat of a surprise because he, no one expected that they kind of thought he would be a short interim Pope. And then he probably wouldn't have even a chance to do much. And then instead this, he had this inspiration to call the council. Um, So just a little bit of a background to that. There have been several councils and there had been a Vatican one, so they're, they're named after the location they take place in. So like Nicaea, that was in the city of Nicaea. Um, in this case, the first Vatican Council in 1869 and 1870 um, took place at the Vatican. That's why it's called the first Vatican Council. Well, it got interrupted. So it did make some very important declarations and even a dogmatic definition um, but it got interrupted by a war, so it never finished. It, it was supposed to do a lot more than it did. And basically, so Vatican II was basically tasked with, all right, let's address some of the, the problems that even happened since then. Because you're thinking about the late 19th century to the mid-20th century, a lot had happened. Yeah. The Industrial Revolution with media, with travel. Um, so there were a lot of advances in technology and other issues and politically. Um, and so the, the idea is to, all right, let's, let's address some things going on now. But just very briefly, that's what an ecumenical council is. So it's the, the bishops from around the world gathered together to address certain issues and to, to teach the faith and sometimes to, to issue like decrees on how we should conduct certain things. And so that's what it was. And it's actually the second Vatican Council was, is the largest council in church's history regarding numbers. It's by, by far the most bishops attended Vatican II over any other council. Yeah. So was it tasked to, were there certain things, certain heresies, certain um, misguidedness happening in the church that it was tasked with, with focusing on? Or what kind of was the mandate of, of Vatican II when it began? So some of the background to this is interesting. So before he was Pope, John XXIII had actually done like many, many years of work on uh, St. Charles Borromeo's implementation of the Council of Trent. And he was very moved by the efficacy and what that did for the local church that implemented the way that Charles Borromeo had done it. And so he spent like, I want to say it was over a decade working on like the the documents from that and, and reading how that council was implemented by St. Charles Borromeo. And so John the 23rd really was just kind of hoping that we could have a revival. There were, there wasn't like a specific heresy per se. Um, it was more of a pastoral need. He wanted to try to do a couple of things. One, renew the church from within. So revivify her internal life and help bolster her own self-understanding. 
So what is the church? How is it structured? What's the meaning of that? Um, talk about the different roles within the church and how they collaborate with one another, as well as how can we effectively engage others, whether they are fellow Christians, but not in union with us, whether they are non-Christians or just the world at large, even the secular world. So um, there was a missionary bent to it, which was, okay, how can we improve relations with those that aren't Catholic as a step towards being able to proclaim the gospel more effectively? Like, let's, let's try to get rid of some of the animosity that's going on, um, especially with regards to wars and things like that. Let's, let's try to be more friendly with one another, more charitable, and then let's hopefully that will pave the way for being able to more effectively proclaim the gospel um, and to bring others into um, the church as well, as well as to provide just, you know, insights to the world at large on how we can solve some, some problems in contemporary society. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't, but it wasn't an attempt. I mean, it happened in the 1960s, right? It wasn't an attempt to, which I think, Right there, that kind of colors the perspective sometimes because it's the 1960s, more than 1960s, right? So it wasn't an attempt necessarily to to liberalize the faith. That wasn't what the council intended, Mm -hmm. despite kind of existing in that, a a culture which very much was doing that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It wasn't, it's, you have to kind of have a balanced understanding of it, I think. It's, there was the idea of, Adjournamento, which is an Italian word that means updating, bringing up to date. But it was, it was more, it wasn't about changing the fundamental doctrine. And this is reiterated by Pope St. John the 23rd and Paul the 6th. I mean, all throughout, right? We're not changing the doctrines or the dogmas of the faith. But let's try to find ways of expressing those truths to our contemporary world in terminology that they will understand. So instead of, for instance, instead of using like highly technical scholastic phrases um, and doing, you know, very specific formulations, they use more of a narrative approach to the documents and they try to use more common language or explain things in a way that would be a little bit more understandable and engaging with the readers um, who are contemporary. So how do we make the faith more understandable to modern man not modernize the faith which are two different things yeah yeah definitely and what kinds of things then came out of vatican II that had that in mind what kinds of things that were, were produced and and i know a number of documents were, were written and distributed mm-hmm. what kinds of things did they come out with at this ecumenical council yeah so there were 16 documents of vatican II. um you have Four that are constitutions, two dogmatic constitutions, one pastoral constitution, and one that's just called a constitution. We don't need to get into the minutiae of the differences, but dogmatic constitutions can carry the most weight. Um, so you have like Dei Verbum, which was the dogmatic constitution on divine revelation, which I think is a just brilliant document. But it kind of was expressing, well, what is revelation? When we say revelation, what is it? Where does it take place? When does it take place? How is it handed on from generation to generation? Um, how is the how does um, the scripture relate to the 
to tradition and to the magisterium? How do those relate to Revelation? Um, What's the role of scripture in the church? Was a big part of it as well. Um, so talking about the continuing validity of the Old Testament, um, there's there had been new hermeneutics of biblical hermeneutics that had come out like in the century prior, century or two prior. So, well, how do we deal with those? Is there a legitimate use of like the historical critical method? Is it sufficient? Does it need to be augmented by other readings? So they, it's a brilliant document, actually fairly short. Um, but that was a big part. So that's sort of, to me, is sort of the, the, the foundation of the rest of, of the council. Um, it, it's major point, I think, is that ultimately Jesus is the mediator and fullness of all revelation. And so it points to Christ as bringing the fullness of truth. Um, and then, of course, that leads naturally into the dogmatic constitution on the church, which is Lumen Gentium, um, because the church is understood as the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. And the church is understood there in Lumen Gentium as being the sacrament of salvation and unity of all people. So it's an efficacious sign that helps bring about that which it signifies, thus sacramental. Um, it's, it's actually a part of the effect of salvation. And so then it kind of goes through and explains the different parts of the, or how the church is structured, as well as the different levels of magisterial teaching. So it kind of clarifies that, the levels of holy orders, including the episcopacy. Um, so a lot of it is just reiterating certain truths. Now, the episcopacy actually was, someone actually settled an, an, an open question at the time. Um, then it also dealt with a had a declaration of religious liberty. Um, it had documents on ecumenism, which is dialogue between between Christians of different denominations, or what how the council refers to them as either churches or ecclesial communities, depending. Um, if you want, we can delve into that distinction later. But um, and then you have interreligious dialogue, which is between Christians and non Christians. And there was a, a document about so the church's relationship to non-Christian religions. Um, there was also some documents on like the formation of priests, on episcopacy and religious life and things like that. So it kind of dealt with a lot of internal matters of the church as well as the external relations. And then, of course, Gaudium et Spes was a document on the church in the modern world. And that's the largest document, if memory serves, um, it's a pretty long document, but it's dealing with all sorts of issues going on in the world and how the church understands them and thinks we should approach them. And then, of course, probably the most well-known and discussed amongst Catholics is Sacrosanctum Concilium, although I should probably clarify that. Maybe not the most well-known, but it's the it was the constitution on the sacred liturgy. And so it had issued principles for a reform of the Latin rite, the mass, the Latin rite. Um, and so that's where a lot of people saw the biggest changes. They most, most people associate Vatican II with changes to the liturgy, even though it did a lot more and that was just one component that's probably what it's most well-known for. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to dig, lot to dig into 
there. Maybe we'll start backwards. I mean, at, at the at the end of that. I mean, the, the one thing that strikes mm-hmm. me is you start off by saying that the attempt wasn't to to revolutionize the church or change the church, it was to clarify these teachings on these different things. And most in most, most cases, it was it was updating in a sense of of re-expressing itself, I guess, to, to to itself to really work out what we as Catholics believe. Let's let's start with the liturgy, though, I guess, because. As you said, this is the thing that most Catholics would have seen on the ground kind of emerge from this, I guess, right? And I can't imagine I can't imagine being a Catholic at that time, right? And I, my understanding is you would have gone to Mass on one weekend, and the next you would have gone again, and it could have looked quite different, or it could have looked mm-hmm. quite different pretty pretty quickly. And, I mean, that, that seems like a radical change. What, what kind of changes did this actually bring about, or was intended to bring about? Let's, let's, there's, there are two questions in there. Interestingly, and if, if I'm remembering correctly, it was actually one of the least controversial documents to get passed to the council. It was like one of the most unanimous. And most of the documents actually were nearly unanimous. And we're talking like 2,580 to three on the votes. I mean, they were, I mean, these were very super majorities with the documents. Um, but sacrosanct and concilium. So just to back up. So the Second Vatican Council had been prepared for three years. So from 1959 to 1962, they had all sorts of work being done to prepare for it. Then it happened from 1962 to 1965. Now, I'm not a liturgical historian or expert in the liturgy per se. I, I think the first, what we now call the Novus Ordo or the ordinary form of the Mass, I think that wasn't until like 69 or 70. So there was a few years because the council itself didn't make changes to the liturgy. It issued principles. So it it talked about, well, what is the liturgy? It's the high point of the church's life, right? Um, And then it gave principles for how a reform should be done, but it didn't actually do the, the changes itself. Now, you can talk about differences between what Sacrosanctum Concilium said and what people experienced on the ground, because even a lot of people that were at the council in support of a reform of the liturgy very quickly got dismayed about what, what took place. And, and Pope Benedict XVI, back then, Ratzinger, um, was one of those. Um, and like Louis Boyer and people like that. So... Essentially, it wanted, it, with regards to the liturgy, it did call for the possibility of using more vernacular in the liturgy, because at that time, the Latin rite, because remember, within the Catholic Church, most some people don't know this, there's actually like 22 or 23 sui juris, meaning self-governing Eastern Catholic churches that are still in full union with Rome, they're fully Catholic, um, but they have their own liturgical traditions. Um, and there's, there's sort of like varying degrees. So you have like Byzantine, which includes several others, like Ruthenian is under the Byzantine tradition. And then you have others like the Maronites. Well, by far, the, the Latin church, the Roman rite, is the largest as far as population of Catholics. But it, it mainly only dealt with that liturgy, not the Eastern churches, mostly. Okay, so at that time, the Mass was completely in Latin. So all of the prayers, the readings are even done in Latin. So you have the Epistle, you have the Gospel, they were proclaimed in Latin. Um, 
most people would have a missile, and the idea was you would they would have the Latin and then their vernacular, like English, on opposing sides or next to each other in columns, so you could follow along in your native language. But you basically then had to read it because everything being said was in Latin. So one of the things that Sanctum Concilium called for was a greater allowance for the vernacular to be used in the liturgy itself, especially in parts of the Mass that change from week to week, like the collects, talking about the opening prayer and the prayer after communion, because those change relatively frequently. Um, so for better comprehension, okay, maybe we can just do those in the vernacular. It still actually called for Latin to be used in the, for the people to know their responses in Latin. So the, the parts of the Mass that pretty much remain the same, the ordinary of the Mass, um, was envisioned to actually remain mostly in Latin, but it was left up to bishops' conferences and things to decide how much vernacular versus how much Latin. What you ended up actually seeing in practice was a lot of times it was like, the next day it's all in English. You know, from one weekend to the next in the late 60s or early 70s. Um, and that just kind of threw people for a loop. Um, it also called, it's funny because the document itself actually affirmed certain things that were already kind of the norm, such as um, Gregorian chant taking pride of place in the Latin rite as particularly suitable to the Latin liturgy um, or polyphony. Um, and the pipe organ as being the most fitting instrument for the sacred liturgy, which might surprise some people because that's probably, the organ's still pretty widely used, but well, there's a lot of masses that use other instruments and things now that were never mentioned in the Sacrosanctum Concilium. So sometimes there's confusion because people think, oh, well, Vatican II said to do this. Well, it's not necessarily the case. So they're the actual experience on the ground is not necessarily what you'll find in the documents of Vatican II itself. Um, so it's just kind of an important caveat to make. Yeah, and this is—I mean, this is the big thing that I think begins to create this division that you see within the church, and that kind of detracts from those who are looking into the church. It's this idea of okay, so Vatican II said these things, but look look what happened, right? And a lot of people will point to things like the guitar being, you know, guitar masses suddenly becoming a thing. I can think for myself, I when I was doing RCAA, which is for listeners and viewers, kind of the program that uh, Christians, adult Christians do to become Catholic. I can remember very clearly, uh, we had this opportunity to do Eucharistic adoration in the church, which uh, which is, again, for, for listeners and, and viewers, which is the Eucharist, the host, which we believe becomes the body and blood of, of Jesus, up there on the altar, and we can go in there and we can kind of pray before that. We believe that Jesus is there on the altar in that, and we can pray. And I was so excited to do this as a convert, and I went in and I said, oh yeah, so so we go, we bow down on both knees, right, before we enter the church to, to show respect to Jesus. And this, this lovely nun who was a fantastic religious sister, she was wonderful, taught this class. I owe her a great, a tremendous debt I, I owe her for teaching me this class. But she came out of this post-Vatican II time, and she said, no, 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 we used to do that. We don't anymore since Vatican II. We don't do that anymore. And I thought, no, wait, because I, I knew we still did that. I had been studying the faith. You know, I'd watch all these different lectures yeah. and videos and read, read tons of books. But here's this idea that Vatican II did away with these things that we used to do these things here. We, we don't anymore. 
And I learned about this thing called the Spirit of Vatican II. So can we kind of unpack that a little bit as it pertains, first of all, to the liturgy? And then we'll talk about other topics as well. But this idea that the liturgy was fundamentally changed or or was meant to be really isn't what the council intended, right? That's more of... Uh, interpretation yeah, of the council? I, I don't I don't think so. I mean, it did call for some... There's a lot of repetitions in the, the older form of the Mass that was now called the extraordinary form or the traditional Latin Mass. So it called for, well, let's simplify some things. But yes, yeah, so anyway, what I'm trying to... What am I trying to say? I wanted to highlight one thing. I do want to make an important caveat to what I said earlier about like the pipe organ and things. We do have to keep in mind that the Vatican Council is speaking to the whole church and even the whole world. There might be, there. I'm sure there are tons of like parishes in third world countries that can't afford a pipe organ. So we'd have to be careful. It's like, we can't just look at things through our own lens. So it, there is allowance for other types of instruments to be used when that's maybe more to a particular place or just more accessible. Um, but it, it did just make the comment that, yes, the tr- tradition of the pipe organ is, is particularly suitable for the Latin literature. So I just want to make that caveat. Um, so, but some places can't do that, and we're not yeah. saying that that's wrong. Um, they're doing the best they can. But, yes, there was, unfortunately, you, you had a number of people, especially after the council, that kind of pushed the notion of the spirit of Vatican II. And what that basically meant to, to the people using it or appealing to it was that, well, we don't really need to pay attention to the documents and what they actually say. We just need to see it as an event that opened up the church to just kind of do new things. Well, that's not what the documents actually say, though. And so it's, it's a false understanding of the council to, to give this spirit that is contradictory to the letter. The true spirit of the council is given in the documents, in the text themselves. And so, unfortunately, that, that what you were experiencing yourself was not uncommon. And in some places, it's still common. I think it's getting better now. Um, but there were a lot of people teaching in seminaries and colleges, all sorts of things that were not really in line with the council. So they used the council as somewhat of an excuse and a license to do things not called for by the council, but they were proclaiming that it was in the spirit of the council, even if it wasn't actually backed up by it. And that's that's not really, it's a shame because a, a lot of the stuff the council called for um is amazing and would be very beneficial if you do it faithfully. So, yeah, what you're, what you're describing, though, is a very common problem. Um, actually, uh, Dr. Matthew Levering, in the, he wrote the afterword to the Word on Fire Vatican II collection book that contains the four major constitutions, and he, he talks about this, how there were some what we call like liberal religious liberalism, which is distinct from political liberalism, um, in the decades following the council became pretty rampant and was misappropriating and misrepresenting the council 
giving people a lot of false understandings about it. And so we, as well as just the likes of him, are trying to overcome that and, and try to help give a better, authentic understanding of what the council taught and called for. Yeah, it seems more like that's the spirit of the age than the spirit of the council. I mean, this was within the yes. this was the sixties. A lot of parts of culture were liberalizing, if you will, right? And opening up and things were more acceptable. Mm-hmm. Birth control became widely available. Mm-hmm. All these kinds of things were, were happening. It was a spirit of change in in culture. I guess that what what the spirit of Vatican II really was adopting was a spirit of the age more than Vatican II, right? Is that safe to say? Yeah, I would I would say so. The spirit of Vatican II very much was. It was like they were just they were trying to get the church to conform to society and, and currents within the general culture more so than even being faithful to her own tradition and doctrines. And so this sort of you're dealing with a lot of liberalism with regards to well, you know, our dogma is really fixed. You know, are they just expressions of personal religious experience rather than actually true statements? Absolutely. Um, you had, you know, ideas of, oh, well, you know, we can just read like the history of the, the gospel, calling into question the historical reality of like the gospels, for instance, and like all these different sort of liberal tendencies that were being pushed in the universities. I mean, it, it really it, it did a lot of damage. Um, and give a lot of mis- misunderstanding about what the church actually was trying to do with with the council. It was very clear if you read if you read the speeches and the documents of the popes who reigned over the council and approved the documents, Pope Saint John Twenty Third and Pope Saint Paul the Sixth. It's very clear that they want they were affirming the enduring reality of dogmas and doctrines and not calling for us to throw all that stuff out. Yeah. So Vatican II is synonymous with the idea of the Latin mass this time before, and then Noah's Ordum, mm-hmm. the, the new mass that we see most commonly now in Catholic parishes afterwards, right? And this distinct shift. And so a lot of the, the, the people that come out criticizing Vatican II will point to the Latin mass as this superior mm-hmm. thing. Look how, look how much more reverent this is much more holy, much more solemn, much more traditional, how the church has always done this. This distinct change happened here. So, I mean, liturgy is a huge part of, of the criticism of those who criticize mm-hmm. Vatican II as not being a good thing or a true thing or, or, or a real thing in some cases, an actual valid council. What do we make of that distinction between the Latin Mass and Novus Ordo Mass and the role Vatican mm-hmm. II played in that? And, and I mean that comparison between the two saying, no, Vatican II is terrible because look, the mass was this. And now the mass is this. Is that fair to say, look, th- these two things are like this. And so Vatican II is terrible. Is that, is that fair to say? Does that make any sense to make I, that kind of a point? I, I personally, I don't think it is fair to say because especially if you're talking about in the concrete, what people were experiencing in the pews that they're lamenting. A lot of the things were not called for by the actual council. Yeah. So to me, if you're going to look at the council's texts, well, to judge the council, you have to judge it by the actual texts. So if you're complaining about this particular thing happening in the liturgy that you're seeing at your local parish, and it's not called for in the text, you can't blame the text. So you have to look at the source of where that's coming from. Some of it could be a change in the actual rubrics. Oftentimes, it's things that are being done 
on the local level that are actually still against the rubrics of the Novus Ordo. So you, for every particular issue that you're dealing with liturgically, you kind of have to find out, well, where is this coming from? Is this actually called for by the, the rite itself, or is it just being changed at the whim of someone locally? Um, so I, I, it's not really a fair thing to say that it's the council's fault. There were, after the council, there were actually commissions in charge of actually implementing things. And then you also had just how they were actually followed or not at the local level. I mean, you know, we all hear horror stories about some of the liturgies in the, yeah. <laughs> in the 70s and 80s and stuff that were completely always against the actual rubrics of the Mass, um, but still were going on. And in some places, you might still see some stuff like that going on. Um, so I, th I think it's just important to be honest about where certain things originated. Yeah, I guess it's a matter of saying that just because people interpret this a certain way and you see these bad liturgies exist and they, they, we know they do exist, doesn't mean the council was bad or intended that, right? Right, right. And I guess then too is, I mean, what we're seeing is then the fall of Vatican II and the spirit of Vatican II, in a sense, is that spirit pervaded, you said, in, in, in universities and different places. And I guess down to the the sister that I met who was who was brought up during this post-Vatican II time. So the schooling she received, this, the training as a, yes. as a nun she received would have been possibly, and it, I mean, it was in this case, tainted by this the interpretation mm -hmm. Of the council, right? So, is it safe to say there's almost there's almost this large swath of of Catholics who would have I don't know been been victims of the spirit of Vatican II, whether they really knew oh, it yeah. or not. I mean, no matter how faithful they would have been to to attend mass and study post secondary level, study the, the faith, they were almost victims of this spirit in a sense, right? Because what they received yes. teaching. Yeah, because they're just trusting their professors or their teachers, and they're just assuming that what they're being told is accurate. In many cases, it wasn't. And in some cases, I would, I would go so far as to say that it wasn't really, like, a lot of, in some cases, those people knew that they weren't being accurate. Right. About the they were pushing their own agenda. Okay, they weren't trying to necessarily be faithful to the council. They were trying to push the envelope and go beyond. I mean, you had a series of books coming out like, oh, Vatican, the need for Vatican III kind of, I mean, fairly soon after the council itself, you had theologians writing books calling for the church to do go well beyond what the council itself said. Um, and those people were teaching courses, encouraging that sort of thing in their students. And that was fairly widespread. Now, one thing that I think is important to realize is that this stuff didn't happen right after Vatican II. Like, there was already some of these things happening in universities and seminaries before the council. Like, there were already these, these um, religious liberal movements taking place in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Now, they might have been smaller and not as influential, but they were taking place. Um, but then, yes, in the, like the 60s and late 60s and 70s and beyond, they, they kind of just seem to overwhelm the universities and, and schools. So, yeah, it's unfortunate, but yeah, it's 
is a very widespread problem. I think too of of the problem of how Catholics today. I mean, the the reverence, the understanding, for something like the Eucharist in the liturgy, right? Eucharistic, uh, Eucharistic literacy, if you can put it that way, is so low mm-hmm. these days in the Catholic Church, right? Those who understand what the Eucharist is, what the Church teaches about the Eucharist. I, I feel like in large measure, that's going to be a product of this liberalization that happened in the spirit of Vatican II. And in some of these movements that downplayed elements of the of the Mass, mm-hmm. of, of the liturgy. Yeah. And I, I think then you'd see those people who point to Vatican II and say, look, this was horrible because you, you lost all the trappings of, say, the Latin Mass, which would have held the Eucharist at a very high level. You'd have seen people on their knees to receive the Eucharist. You would have seen much more reverence in the Latin Mass versus a Noah's Ordo Mass. And then point to the, the poor Eucharistic literacy that we have these days and say, look, this is what happened. This is why it was bad because, look, no one knows what the Eucharist actually is. Is there some, something something in there? Is there a grain of truth in there? Is there a lesson to be learned from that, do you think? I think there is a lesson to be learned. I mean, obviously, in some sense, actions speak louder than words. And the liturgy is the, the high point of the church's life. The church is most herself when she is celebrating the Mass. And... The liturgy, the way that it's celebrated, should reflect the mysteries that are actually taking place. Um, I, I like to use an example of when it comes to like music, just for instance. Um, I think of like liturgical music as sort of like a soundtrack. Okay, it's not a concert per se, although some liturgical music can be used as a concert because it's so beautiful. Um, but it's supposed to be matching and helping to more fully express the reality that's taking place, the, the divine and heavenly realities that are present. Um, if, you're, if you're watching a movie and the soundtrack doesn't match what's going on, it can ruin the whole experience. Yeah. Right? So if the way that the liturgy is not being celebrated is not as sacred and uplifting and... and awe-inspiring as the actual mysteries that they're meant to express, there's a problem. And if you do sort of downplay the solemnity of, of the liturgy, it can have very bad effects because people would say, oh, well, this is no big deal. This is just like any other, like, if it feels more like a picnic than a solemn celebration and worship of the triune God, that's going to have an effect. You know, and so I think it's important to realize Vatican II never called for the liturgy yeah. to be done in a non-solemn way. And so it's, it's not fair to blame Vatican II itself. It's also, I think, important to realize that it's, we, see, we, are, we only experience our own times. And I think sometimes we have a very myopic view of history. It's like we tend to think, oh, after every other council in church's history, things were fine. No, there were, it was actually kind of a norm for after an ecumenical council, there would still be a lot of problems going on in trying to implement it and understand it. I mean, that's why if you look at the first, you know, seven ecumenical councils, mostly dealing with like the Trinity and Christ- Christological dogma, like the central aspects of our faith, there's still confusion going on. I mean, St. Um, Basil the Great describes after the first ecumenical council of Nicaea, 
like, oh my gosh, like people are interpreting it either by excess or, or by privation, like completely wrong. And there's fighting going on in the churches. And like, he's describing what, you know, you often see in the church today as happening back then. Um, so it's not uncommon that, I mean, I've, I've heard it. It's just, it's sort of just anecdotal, but not anecdotal, but it's, it's sort of a phrase that's thrown around is that it usually takes about a hundred years for a council to actually be implemented. <laughs> so by the time you get from the council itself to, you know, it being settled, it, it can take a while. I mean, the Council of Ephesus in 431 had to be followed up 20 years later by Chalcedon because there was still fighting going on about the about Christology <laughs> and questions. And then even after then, there were people claiming that Chalcedon was teaching an Astorian version of, of which Ephesus had condemned. And of course, it wasn't, but people were misinterpreting Chalcedon. So this isn't really unique to Vatican II, but we, we tend to just think that way. Like everything, all the other councils were cut and dry and everyone followed it and things were great and liturgies were always awesome before the council and now they're, everything fell apart afterwards. And, and it's just not entirely true. But yes, there's there's certainly, I, I think you could argue there's been a crisis in, in the liturgy, certainly on the ground that has taken place. It did, that did a lot of damage. Yeah. And I think, I mean, going with that theme of the historical myopathy there, the, the, the mass prior to Vatican II wasn't necessarily this rosy, really, really vibrant, really, uh, solemn. Those are kind of opposite things, but really, really, um, devout thing happening necessarily. Very, very worshipful there. Right. The Vatican II said things about liturgy because things had to be said about the liturgy. It wasn't this perfect thing that used to happen. And it wasn't this it wasn't right. as if the mass that was was celebrated before Vatican II was the exact same mass for for all those years, you know, the two thousand years almost bef- before that. Right. I, I think it's a misunderstanding that this the the Latin Mass was this perfect thing that that Vatican II destroyed. That right there was I know you're not a liturgist and I'm not either. I do love the liturgy. But I think that's an important distinction to make, right? It, it, it spoke to liturgy because the liturgy wasn't perfect. There were people that needed to to understand it better and to clarify things. Uh, we often look at this Latin Mass in mm-hmm. w- through through rose colored glasses, right? It was this perfect thing that used to happen, and you know, we want that right. back. Our, our liturgy has, has been destroyed, right? I don't think that was right. necessarily the case. Yeah, I think we, we sometimes don't know. I mean, I've talk to people that were alive back then about it and their experiences were, I'm mean, talking about devout Catholics who were very yeah. orthodox in their faith that struggled with it. Right. They really had a hard time engaging in it. Um, and I also think we can sometimes downplay the abuses that could have been taken and did take place in that liturgy as well. That might not have been as noticeable because most things are done in secret. Yeah. But you know, I've been, I've been to several traditional Latin masses. I actually go regularly myself. I, I do love the traditional Latin mass, but I also go to Novus Ordo. Um, but so you could have a priest because we think of it as being solemn and more reverent and it could appear that way externally. But if the priest is saying the prayers silently to really even know, he could be just speed reading through it to get it done. I mean, there were priests were notorious apparently for back in those days for daily masses being they would do a requiem mass 
because it was shorter. Right. <laughs> and like every day they would do that just so they could keep it, the, the time down. Um, a lot of people were just praying the rosary during the liturgy. So they weren't even reading in the, in the breviary, or I mean, sorry, in the missal and following along. They were doing something else while the priest was doing his thing. And they were sitting there praying the rosary instead and not engaging in the right. prayers of the mass. Not following. And, and so there, there, there can be this disconnect. And, and I, again, I attend that, that mass regularly. And sometimes even I, who can follow along in Latin, am like a page or two off from where the priest is. Because a lot of it depends on how fast you're reading it. And, you know, so there, it's not always easy to, to be on the same page. Or even, even it's, it's, it can actually be very difficult to even witness what's going on and read because I can't look at both at the same time. Um, so there, it wasn't perfect. Now it's a beautiful mass. Yeah. It really is. And I, especially the, I mean, a lot of them get really good music. You get really good music. It's amazing. Um, but even there, there can be a disconnect because the priest might be saying like the creed separately from it being sung, if it's a misa cantata. And then he goes and sits down while the choir still singing the creed. And then, all the people sit down with the priest waiting for the choir to finish. And so, you know, it can, there can be these weird disconnects that take place even in that mass. And so, you know, a lot of the people that were pushing for the liturgical reforms were still traditionally minded folks like Ratzinger, who was a, a peritus, a, an expert at the council had actually been leery of the liturgical movement when it first came out when he was a student of theology. One of his professors actually helped get him on board with it. But then even he, when he started seeing what was took place after the council, he goes, well, no, 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 that's not what we had in mind. And so even people, so what the council itself called for and what the understanding of what a reform meant and then what they saw taking place in concrete were often very different things. Yeah. Um, and but so what I'm what I'm getting at with that is even someone like Pope Benedict the Sixteenth, who, I mean, he he as a child he would actually like translate, try to do German translations of the Latin, <laughs> you know, as a child. Like he 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 loved the missile when he was a kid. He got one like a, a child's missile, and then as he he would get older, he'd get these more and more advanced versions. Even as a young child, he was very much immersed in liturgy and loved the liturgy. And so even he thought that the mass could use some reform. <laughs> so it wasn't like, no, it's perfect. It doesn't even change. It was like, oh yeah, it actually could. We could, we could improve, we can make improvements on this. Um, the difference is like, well, all right, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> and unfortunately, you know, a lot of things have gone on that you know, envisioned, yeah. let's yeah. say. Yeah. The other, the other, criticism that people will have about Vatican II is that it kind of opens up, I don't know if you want to say salvation or the, the, the church, the body of Christ to kind of anybody and everybody, right? You're kind of saved. And this is, this is addressing the idea of addressing these ecclesial communities and non, mm -hmm. non-Catholic Christians. And I mean, the impression you get from certain people and certain sections of the Catholic church who criticize Vatican II, certainly friends that I have who have brought this to me or listeners to this show who've asked questions about this, 
the impression is, well, why do I have to be Catholic? Because I'm saved no matter what. I don't have to be Catholic to be saved. <laughs> Vatican II taught this. What do we make of that? Because I know, you know, I've read my catechism. I, I know that's not necessarily what, what the catechism says, what Vatican II taught. It's an interpretation of that, but often the one that's right. bandied about. What, what do we make of the idea of Vatican II opening up the floodgates to everybody being saved and the Catholic Church being kind of unnecessary? At this point, yeah, it, it's 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 an important point that's actually conf- very confused. I'm actually planning on doing a a course on Vatican II through the Word on Fire Institute. I'm actually going to be doing a couple of different ones, um, but because of this question and this misunderstanding, I've actually right now the plan is for me to to change the way I normally do it because usually when I teach Vatican II, I start with Dei Verbum, then I go through Lumen Gentium. Um, Sacrosanctum Concilium, Gaudium et Spes, and then I get into the ecumenism. And then, so I start from the church or revelation of the church. And then I go out into the world, um, and, um, ecumenical dialogue and then interreligious. And then I go outwards. I think I've actually decided for this next course, I'm going to do it the reverse because I think if you understand the narrative flow of what the council was teaching, it makes a lot more sense on this particular question. Since this particular question has been coming up a lot lately, I think I'm actually going to change the order of presentation. What the council taught was that basically throughout history, man has been, has, has been wrestling with fundamental questions. Okay. Why is there something rather than nothing? Is there a God? Is there a divine realm? Is there, something after this life how do we wrestle with suffering in this world like these really important questions and it it goes through and talks about how in various cultures in different parts of the world especially in highly developed societies you ended up getting these more developed religions hinduism buddhism um and things of that sort, and that they are striving to try to make sense of these mysteries and are proposing different solutions. And what it says is that they they sometimes reflect a ray of that truth that enlightens everyone, which ultimately is Christ himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life. It literally says in that same document, the church must always, I think the Latin, I forget the Latin word, but it basically means, sometimes in English it's not translated as strongly as the Latin actually means, but it's it, it, the document sort of admits, okay, they're striving. They often reflect, or at least sometimes reflect, a ray of that truth. They're nevertheless, the church always must always proclaim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not teaching religious indifferentism. It's it's trying to acknowledge that yes, these folks are striving. They often have good intentions. A lot of them have actually a, a pretty um, good moral teaching that's similar to our own, that there's these points of contact that we have with them that we can use as the basis for more fraternal, you know, collaboration in dealing with poverty or other issues and of trying to, to stop wars with each other and end the violence. Um, so it's, it's trying to acknowledge the good that, and it says that we reject nothing that is good and true in those religions. It's not saying that they are perfect. As a matter of fact, there's several times throughout the documents 
Um, I actually had a list at one point. It's pretty long. Um, talking about sin. And it says, and it even says, unfortunately, like men often fall into error and are deceived by the evil one that is Satan. Okay. And sometimes it's intentional because they're just, they don't care. They're not really looking for the truth. They're, they're deceived. Um, because one thing that the council taught was that every human being is called to search for the truth and to adhere to it once it is known. Okay. So that's, actually a fundamental universal demand on every human person to seek the truth and follow it insofar as it is known. That's an obligation. So it, it actually says in one of the documents, I forget which one it was, but um, that the same thing cannot be said of those who care little for the truth and for seeking these things. So, what it's, it's pushing is that there's this common universal search for the truth or just to, to answer fundamental questions. And different peoples have tried to offer different solutions. There's some truth in them. There's also a lot of error. And unfortunately, they're often deceived. Um, that's why we need revelation. And that, so that's where Dave Airbone comes in, that it's you know, God himself has revealed the truth to us, especially in Christ. And so now he is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the, the, um, the, um, what am I trying to say? He's the mediator and fullness of all revelation. He has established a church which continues to exist, to subsist in the Catholic Church. Is the church established by Christ is the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, now, what it says about salvation is basically the same thing that other popes have said before the council, which is it's possible due to invincible ignorance that someone has not come to an explicit knowledge that Christ is actually God incarnate and died for our sins and that he, he established the Catholic Church as the means of salvation. So be, if you're inculpably ignorant, that means you're ignorant because without any fault. Now, you can be ignorant with fault. Again, if you're not seeking the truth, okay, that's not an excuse. Um, but there, there could be reasons why someone who doesn't know that this is true, that the Catholic faith is true, that Jesus really is the, the way to the Father, that God could be offering grace, and that person could be responding to that grace where they're not going to be damned for not knowing. Okay, so, but even then, they're still somehow connected to the church if that's taking place, because if, if you're connected to Christ in grace, you're connected to the church. You can't be connected to Christ and not the church. The two are inseparable. Just as a husband and wife become one flesh, Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride are one flesh. You, if you're united to one, united to the other. So what it says is, yes, it, it, it can be possible. There can be individual people who are not Catholic, who are not, perhaps not Christian, that might still end up being saved. But it's not because their religion is just as good as the Catholic faith right. or just as true or just as high of a means of salvation. It's simply, well, God in his liberality desires the salvation of all. He also desires that everyone come to the knowledge of the truth. But he's ju he judges individuals based on what was possible for them and how they were responding in their life. So it's possible 
But it still teaches very clearly, especially in Lumen Gentium, that the church is necessary for salvation, that it, and it very explicitly states, if, if someone knows that the church was established by Christ as necessary for salvation, neither refuses to enter into her or to remain inside her, such a person could not be saved. So it's actually, you know, Ratzinger actually dealt with this question before he was spoke as well on the question of salvation inside the church. And it's one thing he keeps, he, he kind of says often, he's like, a lot of times when the church is dealing with these things, it's not, our main concern is not to sit here and think, well, what about that hypothetical person over there? Um, the reality of it is, as he himself stated, we know the truth, so we have to follow it. It's not, you, you can't just leave and go do something else. You know, it's every person is called to adhere to the truth insofar as they know it. Yeah. And that truth is Jesus Christ, and the fullness of that truth is in the Catholic Church. And so if you don't continue that, then you will be damned, basically. And it, it even says that, let, you know, to, to Catholics to be aware of this, that because we've been given such a great gift of having all the sacraments and the fullness of the truth and the teaching authority of the magisterium to help us on our way, that if we do not persevere in charity, remember the theological virtue of charity is important here, then not only will we not be saved, we'll be all the more severely condemned. So it's not just, okay, I'm in the church, I'm fine. It's like in the church and you got to live it. Yeah. So the, it's, it's some people, you know, none of those things I just told you sound very liberal and progressive and everything's hunky-dory or, you know, and everyone's saved and don't worry about it, is it? I mean, it's pretty strong statements. If you know the church is the true church, is actually Christ, and for salvation, and you refuse to enter or stay in, and I think the or stay in is becoming very important nowadays. There's a lot of people being tempted to leave. Um, you, they could not be saved. That's not a liberal religious indifferentism teaching. And so we have to kind of understand that. It's saying, yes, there's truths out there. People are trying. There's people out there that maybe have never even heard the gospel, living in places that are not Christian, like hardly at all, that are still trying, and they have some truths. But there's also a mixture of errors, and we're called, because, again, there was a missionary call. There's a call to the council was very big on missionary activity. We need to try to bring these people in the church, bring the truth of the gospel to these people so that they can have the same benefit we have, which is the fullness of truth. So it wouldn't push missionary activity if it thought it, was, it wasn't was important or it thought that all other religions were just as good or valuable or as, you know, as true. Um, no, objectively speaking, the Catholic faith is the fullness of truth and it has the fullness of means of salvation. Because of that, we want to bring it to those that don't have it. And so, yeah, the, the, the Second Vatican Council was not at all into this whole religious indifferentism thing. It was for, you don't have to be a jerk about it, right? <laughs> like, be kind to them. You know, like, don't, you know, yeah, be kind to them. Like, befriend them. Help, like, that's how you're going to help bring them the gospel. Like if you you're, you can just push people further away just by saying, by the way, because you're you know this that or the other thing, you're going to hell and you have no hope. That no, you got to meet them where they're at and help bring them. Like there's a there's a a pathway to, to discipleship and bringing people in that 
you know, is, is important. And if, if they don't get the sense that you care about them, you know, and you're just, you know, belittling them, that's not going to be an effective means. So it was calling for us to kind of like, Hey, let's, let's be charitable when we're trying to convert people here <laughs> and also listen to them. Like if you want, if you're trying to convert this person, you mean it, you're actually trying to convert them. You're not just trying to puff up your own chest and say, Oh, look how brazen I am. Um, if you really care about that person's soul, you're going to listen to their objections or concerns or questions. So that's where the dialogue comes in. You're not going to help them come into the church if you're not willing to listen to where they're at and therefore be able to help bring them in. Well, this is this is the thing, right? Because you talk about that pathway of discipleship and listening to people and 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 walking with that person who's a potential convert to the Catholic faith. And this is what kills me. Because these are the emails that I get that say, look, I want to become Catholic, but I Googled like becoming Catholic or I put it into YouTube. And what do I get? But these videos, these different talking heads, different people out there questioning the validity of Vatican II and whether or not then even the Pope is a real Pope and then Popes that follow Vatican II are real Popes and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it all stems from, was this even a valid council? Because it, it wrecked the church. This is the perspective that it, these, these people come from. It's more and more mm-hmm. prevalent in the church these days. Even then, even then, when I came in six years ago, mm-hmm. I didn't find yeah. that stuff. It's it's grown since then. And you guys at the Word of Fire Institute are putting out this fantastic, you know, beautiful copy of the documents Vatican II to say, hey, look at these. Actually, read these and see what they say, which is a good cure for this mm-hmm. this sickness. I think. What do you say in a nutshell to those people, though? I don't want to speak to the people who are saying these things. I want to speak to the people who are watching, who are who are emailing me and watching this video, who are potential converts who punch into the Google machine, Catholic Church, and right. find these yep. videos. What do you say to those people who find these other people saying Vatican II wasn't valid right. and, are, and are left kind of confused? What do we say to them? I'd say be careful of your sources. You know, you don't... I, I've I've been pushing this notion that you can't have... A soap bo- or sorry, a soap opera approach to ecumenical councils. We've got a lot of these videos out there saying, "Oh, well, this person who's at the council was a bad dude. He was involved in drafting this certain text. Therefore, it, well, are you going to go back and do that with every single ecumenical council in right. history? Because even Vatican One, one of the main authors of like Dei Filius, the Finding Papal Infallibility, it was discovered later had some some bad things going on in his life. So a council's document is not based on the personal holiness of every single person who's involved writing it. We, if you're Catholic, you believe that the church is led by the Holy spirit, that it's, it has a real teaching authority. Okay. And that the spirit will prevent errors and heresies from being taught by ecumenical councils. So, don't listen to just people on YouTube and doing blog posts that are like spouting off because I've seen a lot of those things too. And unfortunately they're just woefully either ignorant or um, misinformed. I mean, when I see some of the videos that you know you come across or even blog posts, you're just like, that's not, that's not even close to being true. So first of all, find a good theologian or, you know, priest or some like that's, that knows the faith, that's orthodox, that's prayerful, 
has a good prayer life and learn from them. Um, and first, first of all, honestly, it's very easy to pick up the catechism. Yeah. <laughs> the, the catechism is a, one of the, I think one of the best things that happened since the council. And it's a brilliant, just read that because that's what the church teaches. Okay. That's the best place. If you want to know what the church teaches, look at the catechism. If you want to know what the council itself actually taught, then read the documents. Now, there's 16 of them, I know, but it's worth the time. And at least read the major ones. You know, like we do have, like this just came out recently, we're in the Fire Vatican II collection, right? Very beautifully done. We're actually going to have a reading plan going along with it that takes you through the entire book in a seven-week you know, I'm, I created reading a reading plan with readings for five days a week over seven weeks to get through it. And hopefully we'll be able to do some videos that will go along with those readings so people can understand it better. Um, now, don't get too alarmed at this. This is, this is just the four. It's the four major constitutions, right? Um, there will be, I think there's going to be another edition with the rest of them later. Um, I think. Um, but this is great um, because this includes a foreword by Bishop Robert Barron, which is excellent, kind of talking about what you were talking about with a lot of these, the recent controversies over the council that have sort of just taken, that seem to have sprung up again recently, in the last year or so. Um, you've got the opening address by Pope St. John Twenty-Third. Um, you've got the an afterword by Dr. Matthew Levering, who's one of the best young theologians out there today. Um, and then interspersed within each of the documents, there's actually, um, let's see if I can show you an example. So you have the, the actual text, and then interspersed throughout the text, you'll have these other, like here. It's where that text has been referenced in a, a subsequent document by like a pope. Like here we have a reference um, Dei Verbum number 10 is being referred to in Pope Benedict XVI's document, Verbum Domini. So it'll actually give you little snippets from the conciliar and post-conciliar popes showing the continuity of the teaching from the council to today. Um, and, and then sometimes also commentaries written by Bishop Barron about that same text. So this isn't, this is the four constitutions, but also with some supplementing material. So you'll see Bishop Barron's reflections on this, like on Dei Verbum 8 through 10. He has a short little reflection on the meaning of that. And so you're not, you're getting the documents plus with some commentary and excerpts from other magisterial texts affirming the teaching of the council. And it's really, it's really well done. Um, and we're going to try to give other helpful resources for understanding the council as well. But don't don't just listen to random people, you know, on on the internet. Like, try to get good sources. There's some good books on Vatican II out there, like um, Father Matthew Lamb and, and Doctor Levering um, have, a, I think, at least two books out on Vatican II that have contributors to them. Um, so read those. Um, Father Jared Wicks, who actually helped me a lot with my dissertation has several articles, but also a book on Vatican II that I'm actually reading through now. It's really good. And um, so tr try to get trusted sources. You know, don't listen to random people 
you know, just spouting off. It's it's not helpful. It's going to be more discouraging, and you're you're probably going to get a lot of disinformation, and it's it's going to make it more confusing because you're gonna you're going to hear a lot of falsehoods about the council. Well, that sounds fantastic. I think your tip about the catechism is fantastic because it's the same advice that I give to people who are dealing with kind of anti-Catholic. Uh, apologists who say, oh, the Catholic Church believes this, this, and this. I always say, well, go to the Catechism and read that for yeah. yourself. It's the same in many of these, these, you know, read the Vatican II documents, read the Catechism, learn what the Church actually right. teaches. I mean, it's such an easy <laughs> solution. It almost seems too easy, yeah. but but there it is. Read those sources, right? Yeah, and the Catechism is great because you'll get quotes from the Council itself to so see how the Council taught on that issue. There's also a lot of quotes from the church fathers and from scripture, which the council itself does a lot of too. So even if you look at the footnotes of the conciliar documents, you see references to past encyclicals and ecumenical councils and church fathers and scripture. Like it's the sources for the documents are very rich and very Catholic. Yeah. Well, Dr. DeClue, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I appreciate it. And this conversation, I love this kind of stuff. Hopefully listeners will love it too. I'm sure they will. You're at the Word on Fire Institute. You've given us a little sneak preview of things coming down the pipeline. Anyone else you want to point people to to, to follow what you're doing other than that? Well, um, mostly the, most of the work I'll be doing will be for the Word on Fire Institute itself. So you can um, sign up and become a member of that. And you'll have access not just to stuff I'll be doing, but we have a whole team of um, full-time and adjunct fellows that offer great courses you also end up getting access to Word and Fire Digital, which includes like Bishop Barron's um, videos and lessons and talks as well. So you get a lot, and plus a quarterly journal called Evangelization Culture. That's excellent. So I, I recommend people sign up for the Word and Fire Institute. Um, we do courses, we do seminars, all sorts of resources that are available through that. So I think it's very worthwhile to do that. Awesome. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sounds fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here. I want to say God bless you. God bless the work that you are doing for the church. And and thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Well, there you have it, guys. My conversation with Dr. Richard DeClue from the Word on Fire Institute about Vatican II. I'd love your feedback at cordsofcatholic at gmail.com. Our website is thecordsofcatholic.com. We're on Instagram at cordsofcatholic, Twitter at cordsofcatholic, and the cordsofcatholic on Facebook. Please do connect with us if you can. YouTube.com slash the cordsofcatholic to watch this episode as well if you want to see what we look like as we talk back and forth. That's fantastic, too. Please do follow, subscribe to this podcast where you can, on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Please do leave ratings and reviews if you can, too. Those help push the podcast out to new listeners, new viewers. And hey, subscribe on YouTube, too, if you can. That'd be fantastic. Word of mouth, too, is how this thing really spreads and grows. So please do tell a friend, tell one or two friends who you think might benefit or like this show, this episode, what we're doing here I'd love that, to spread this message of the Catholic faith far and wide. How about that? Patreon.com slash The Court of Together to support this show financially. 
Those we can give $5 or more a month are entered automatically into draws for free books each and every month, and everyone gets access to a special behind-the-scenes show and exclusive early content as well. That's at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. PayPal.me slash Courts of Catholic for a one-time donation. Those are also appreciated. Those go into capital costs, like equipment, and those kinds of things. And it's really appreciated, guys. So thank you. Hey, I'm praying for you. Please pray for me too. Guys, talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening, and God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.